And welcome to the Range Project Podcast. This is Chris McGrory, and I'm trying to learn from a range of people I admire from Harvard and beyond. I'm trying to understand what my guests do and how they do it. So specifically, I want to get the tactics and routines they use, plus the mental frameworks they have, so you and I can apply them in our own lives. And today, I have on Michael Burvell. So, Michael graduated from Harvard in 2019, where he studied philosophy with a focus in computer science, and, like every other philosopher, now works in venture capital at Microsoft. And he blogs daily on his popular website, Billion Dollar Startup Ideas, and has advanced that passion for startups into working on a book called Unlocking Unicorns, which is due out August of 2021. Now, the book is unique because it profiles 10 startups founders from Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, most of whom you've never heard of, who built billion-dollar companies. And Michael has also had his hand in a bunch of other projects with a social bend, like Hugs4, a nonprofit that helps schools donate to youth around the world, and Enchiridion Corporation, a marketing company he started in college to pay off tuition that then hired and helped other students do the same. And today in this conversation, we riff on the personal tactics of startup founders from his book that can be applied in our own lives. Because, you know, not everybody has aspirations to build a billion dollar company, right? And we also dive into his own story, purposefully getting rejected every day in high school, business lessons learned from his Ghanaian grandma, personal maxims that guide his decision-making, and how he redefines time to be most productive. Now, I think there are some real pearls of wisdom in this one, so please enjoy my conversation with Michael Burvell. One, two, three, do it! Michael, my friend, how are you doing? I am good. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy that you're able to come on. And I first want to say huge congratulations, man. Like writing a book, I can only imagine how much time, effort, and energy went into it. Blood, sweat, physical, emotional energy that went into this project. So I know it's not out yet, but hopefully by the time I release this, we'll be right around release. And yeah, first, I just want to say congratulations. It's so funny because I feel like I wrote a book on accident. (laughs) Say more on accident. Like, I feel like I never came into this project thinking like, I'm going to write a book, right? Like it started with me just writing a blog and it started from someone who read the blog saying like they had wrote a book and me being like, oh, like how did that happen? And then getting connected to their publisher. Anyway, it's a huge story. It's, it's, it was so random though. And so I think that's what I mean by I accidentally wrote a book is that I didn't sit down and think at 23, my bucket list item is to publish a book in a pandemic. Like, no, it didn't come to my head, but hey, that's what happened. Well, that's so funny you mentioned that because I definitely like want to start with the book. And my first question on the book was, you could have done, you could really do anything with your time. It sounds like 
you have a stable job doing venture capital at Microsoft. You don't have a shortage of business ideas. That's for sure. You could, you could take one of those and run with it. So like you could do anything. So why did you write this book, Unlocking Unicorns? Yeah, it's interesting because I had, I had been consuming a lot of content in all of kind of 2020 and even leading up into 2021. Um, the story kind of goes that I, I've been living at home since I graduated from college. So I graduated college 2019, went on this big Euro trip where like me and my roommates from college went all over Eastern Europe. And then I came home and just lived at home and like would have to drive from where I lived kind of north of Seattle to Microsoft's campus. It was like a 45 minute drive, maybe an hour if there was traffic. So I would just listen to audiobooks on double speed. So I think between like September of 2019 and like the pandemic starting in like March, April, May-ish of 2020, I probably read about 75, maybe 80 books. So I was consuming a ton of content. And then I loved listening to podcasts too. I loved listening to How I Built This by Guy Raz, What It Takes by the Academy, Academy of Arts and Sciences, so on and so forth. And I don't know, after consuming all that content, I started to realize like it's pretty repetitive. So I just wanted new stories. And that's kind of how the idea for this book came. I started going on YouTube and searching up like, I wonder what Jack Ma's first public speech was. And like trying to go back to like early 2000s to find the like grainy footage of him like talking about the idea for Alibaba before it became a billion dollar company. And it just got me thinking like, I don't know any of like the legends of startup culture from like other countries, like the things that have influenced all of China or all of Ghana or all of Nigeria. Like I couldn't name one of those stories. So I went from kind of creating it from consuming a bunch of content to wanting to create content. And it kind of became my mantra for 2020 was create more than I consume. I just wanted to try and create more content than I was consuming. So every time I binge watched a Netflix series, I like had to like try to make my own essentially. And that became kind of the mantra. And so since I binge watched 75 books, I was like, well, the least I could do is try to make one, I guess. Sure. <laughs> that is so funny that that's how it came. And we'll definitely have to circle back on audiobooks. It, hopefully there are one or two in there that uh, you would recommend. But the title, Unlocking Unicorns, I know unicorn company valued at at least a billion dollars, which is just kind of like a number that's a little too big for me to wrap my head around. But then the word unlocking, how did you come across, choose, that word and what does that word mean to mean to you? Yeah, well, it's so interesting because as I started listening to all these stories, I would essentially, you know, I took every single Saturday for about, you know, five months. And every Saturday I'd wake up at like 8 a.m. and I would just listen to all of the publicly available talks that someone had given um, on double speed. I'm a big double speed listener from Same 8 a.m. until like 8 p.m. Yeah, it just makes it so much more efficient. So and, you would sit down all day on YouTube or whatever and just kind of dive into one person's story and like try and follow that trail. Is that right? Exactly. Okay, Documentaries, YouTube, Google and Bing search had this thing where you can search like as if you were searching in a certain time period. So it could be like, I want to look at search results from like August 1st, 2003 to August 7th, 2005. And it would only show you articles from that time period. So I really started to dive in and try to understand like what were these people doing and thinking at these moments and how are they reacting to the actual modern day events of those moments? 
just out of curiosity, right? And I realized that like that these people who you know are now super famous and super amazing, part of what they were doing was just consistently being themselves for decades. And that consistency is what led them to their eventual success, right? Whether it's Jack Ma or Robin Lee or any of the other seven people that I, or eight people I mentioned in the book, they all kind of had this kind of secret for themselves. And I felt like I was like, just like by listening to all this content for 12 hours, like 24, 30, 40 hours of content, Alex was getting the key and like unlocking who they were, right? I had no other way of saying it. And it was just nice that there's a little alliteration between you know, unlocking and unicorns that helped a lot, you know, of course, but I think it was fascinating because everyone was always telling me, or I was, I was hearing a lot um, because of my blog, that ideas are worthless. You know, for those who are listening and don't know, my blog is all about startup ideas. And I was able to get the domain name billiondollarstartupideas.com for like $2, which was just amazing. <laughs> it's a pretty good domain name. Couldn't be better. And it's super memorable. It couldn't be better. It should have been a billion dollars, but it's okay. I got it for two. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just so funny because one of the things I would always see whenever I would tweet about it or post on TikTok about it, or even just post on the website is people would say like, ideas are worthless. Execution is everything. And so I was trying to figure out like, is that really true? Right? Like how did these other great billion dollar businesses, you know, come to be like, is execution really the key or is there something else that's, that's behind there? Uh, and, and the framework that I came up with the book is that there's actually quite a few different parts. It's not just execution. Right. You can be a great executor and still not execute to a billion dollar startup. So what does it take? And the framework I came up with is first, you have to ideate. You have to find a bunch of different things that you want to potentially be building or that you think could even be billion dollar companies. Then you should refine down based on what you've learned to actually create something that's worth knowing. It's very much kind of like the lean startup methodology of Eric Ries. And then finally, you have to execute. And of course, execution matters. But execution, you know, isn't the end all be all. It's one of the many parts of, of building a startup and especially building a unicorn business. So that, that to me, it was the key. And I looked at each of these individuals and found they had mastered one part of that three-part framework. And that three-part framework was immediately like clicked in my head just to like, as a framework for almost like any sort of personal project somebody might take on. Like I'm not, I don't have aspirations to have a big startup, but just like in little projects, even like this podcast, like, oh yeah, I guess there was exploration, there was refinement and there was execution. And so there were like little lessons in each of those stories where I was like, oh yeah, I guess that's kind of how I was in that time. That's how I was in this time. And then like looking forward, I think there were a lot of lessons and I want to get to those. But before we do, this was all new to me. I haven't really consumed a whole lot of uh, business literature or nonfiction, whatever. Mm -hmm. So everything was new to me. So I'd be interested to hear from your perspective, did any founder or story kind of challenge any of your assumptions or shift your perspective on on startups, yeah, I think that would that would be interesting from your perspective. Who your work every day is to look at startup businesses. So I would yeah. I would love to hear if you have any thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I mean, my job is literally to look at startups and just decide whether or not to fund them, right? Like, you know, we can give upwards of 15, 20, sometimes even more million dollars to these companies and these founders to build, you know, their visions for the future. Um, I think just this week at M12, we were like, oh, we have three more unicorns in our portfolio, right? It's so casual that we were able to invest in a company three, four years ago, and now it's a billion dollar company. With a B. And with the B, right? It's absurd. And I'm working for a trillion dollar company with a T, right? And so, but to your point, right? I'll, these stories weren't just new, I think, to you. They're also new to me. And I think they're also going to be new to anyone who even, you know, thinks that they may have mastered the knowledge of the startup ecosystem. Because quite frankly, the stories of international founders aren't told, you know, all too often. But I think the favorite thing that I learned, my favorite lesson um, came from the chapter on Kareem. And Kareem is essentially like the Uber of the Middle East. Um, it was made by this guy named Mudasir. Mudasir was like a partner at McKinsey, super smart guy, like could have just stayed there and essentially had a great life. Um, but he and his co-founder Magnus decided they want to do something bigger, right? Like why would they just be kind of, you know, the people who were, you know, selling business strategies for some other big corporation? They want to do something more. And Mudasir was especially um, kind of upset by the fact that in his hometown of, or his home country of Pakistan, there, were, there was only maybe one or two companies big enough to support a McKinsey team to consult with them, right? Because if you you know want to hire a consultant, you should probably have enough money, be like maybe a multimillion or a billion dollar company. And when McKinsey asked him to make an office there, he realized there are no huge companies in Pakistan. So why is that? So here in his, he and his co-founder went into their business saying, all we want to do is make a big impact. We don't even care what the idea is. I think they explored like fish farming and like a bunch of other like weird things to try and figure out like, what can we do that has social good? But also this is a key lesson I thought that also has a, an impact on the ecosystem, right? And so their goal in building a startup was that they wanted to build an ecosystem of entrepreneurship and create an ecosystem of resources where when they would exit, all of their employees, investors, employee like drivers and people interacting with Kareem would also be able to go back and make their own companies and put back into the ecosystem. So I think that ecosystem first approach where you have this kind of like bigger vision or bigger, bigger mission where you actually want to help a bunch of people grow through providing opportunity was super unique. Cause I, I, I don't know, you don't really see that. I think in the U S right. People are trying to make a startup so they can get rich, not so that, you know, people in Denver can make better startups. And yet the whole reason why Mudasir went into the business was because he wanted everyone in the ecosystem to be able to have better resources, knowledge, and to create better startups. So I thought it was super fascinating because the end of the chapter is, you know, where you, you where I reveal kind of the big secret, which is that Kareem sold itself to Uber, right? They're outperforming. They probably could have done a lot better um, than Uber could have done in the region. And if they, you know, had competed against Uber, like another company in the book, which was Grab, which is the Uber of Southeast Asia, you know, on the flip side, Grab acquired Uber in Southeast Asia, whereas in Kareem, Uber acquired Kareem. The reason why Mudasir decided to do that, that big sellout is because in acquiring Kareem, Uber created 300 millionaires in the Middle East and North Africa region, which now these millionaires are going out and making more startups. I literally just saw a tweet from, from Mudasir this past weekend, and he said, just like there was a PayPal mafia, we're now creating the Kareem mafia essentially a bunch of Kareem alumni who are now creating startups, investing in startups, putting money back into the ecosystem to have even greater exponential returns. So I thought that was 
one of my favorite lessons from the book. And one thing that now as an investor, I'm looking more into, you know, what is the motivation behind your business, right? How are you refining your idea to have some sort of passion beyond just, you know, I want to have a big exit or, you know, sell 10,000 products in the next month, you know, what's bigger, what's behind it? What's the motivating factor? That's, that's interesting. Um, because I took like a, a different lesson from that chapter and this just like puts a smile on my face. Like no two readers are going to have the same takeaway. If you're coming at it from a lens of, Hey, how can I apply these lessons to funding a startup? I'm coming at it. How can I take these founders ideas and apply them to my own life from that same chapter? My favorite part was that they believed in themselves to leave McKinsey, like the most stable, high paying job. Like that was probably what they, that was their goal probably coming out of college and they worked their way up, spent years doing it. And then they just left it. And I was like, would I have done that? I'm not sure. And then one layer deeper was that they, they did kind of like an analysis of like how risky this decision was. And I love that just like objectively, assessing the risk and recognizing like, Hey, it might not be as high as kind of the narrative is, is telling us. Um, what, what do you think about that? Well, yeah. And I think what they, what they arrived at is that like in the worst case we fail and then we go back to a place like McKinsey and now we have experience of a startup. So to them, it like actually wasn't a negative at all. It was a, it was a net positive. Right. Which I thought was like super, super fascinating. I think also they were both on the partner track, right? Like they were on the track to be not just like working at McKinsey, they were going to be running McKinsey. And so that, I think to give up that is even, you know, more fascinating. And it also goes to the point that when we think of startup founders, we often think like, you know, the 23 year old Mark Zuckerberg from the social network or the 18 year old, you know, Bill Gates who drops out of, you know, Harvard, but most startup founders are significantly older, right? Like a lot of the investors are, founders I'm investing in are, you know, in their mid forties, right. Early fifties, like their second or maybe even third career. Um, And so I think that is also shown in this, in the story is that they're so much older, so much more experienced and that they still are willing to take the risk and still have to convince themselves, right. There's no point when you're like, Oh, I've made it enough or it's going to be easy for me, you know, to drop out, I guess more money, more problems, more age, more problems. Right. Maybe one of those two phrases. We'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> Got you. And okay, so I love that just that idea that like we're we're having different lessons. So I would encourage people that that pick it up. Like you could read it twice and probably get a different lesson out of it. But can I share maybe some some lessons I took from these stories and then we yeah, riff, we, we riff on them? I think that yes, would please, be let's do it. That would be fun. The first one is in Correct me if I'm pronouncing any of these names wrong. Ritesh Agarwal of Oyo Rooms, right? Yep. So yep. Oyo Oyo Rooms. Yep. Oyo Rooms. Mm-hmm. He has this minimize regret framework, and yep. I love that so much. Maybe you could kind of share what that looks like in his story, and then is that something you adopt? You subscribe to? You say no? I'm a little bit more risk averse. How do you think about that idea? Yeah. So Ritesh has this great regret minimization framework. Um, Essentially what that means is when you're faced with a decision, your question to yourself should be, will I regret 
not making this decision, right? One of the decisions that he had to make was deciding whether or not to drop out of university and become a Teal Fellow. Um, he was actually going to be the first Teal Fellow in South Asia, right? This is back in like maybe 2000, early 2010s. Um, and he, he thought to himself like, well, am I going to regret not dropping out if I don't drop out? And he was like, yeah, I, that's the one thing I would always think about the end of my life on my deathbed, like what would have happened if? And so he wanted to live his life in such a way that he never had those what would happen if moments. Um, and that was essentially what, what he did. He dropped out, came out to the U.S., um, was a Teal Fellow, like shut down his old startup to make a new startup. And one, one of the things that's super fascinating about him coming out to the U.S. is he realized like in San Francisco, people weren't thinking like, I want to make the best startup in San Francisco. They weren't even thinking I want to make the best startup in California or the best startup in the U.S. They were thinking, what could I do to make the best startup in the world? And so he said that like by taking this regret minimization framework and coming to Palo Alto and meeting all these entrepreneurs, it literally changed the way that he started to have ambitions because he started to think rather than just saying like, you know, how can I be the best in my class or the best in my city or the best in my country? Um, he was starting to think like, what could I do to be the best in the world? Right. And that just changed the whole scale of everything that he was doing. Um, another person who shares this regret minimization framework, and I'm pretty sure this is where Ritesh got it from, um, is Jeff Bezos. If you watch any of Jeff Bezos's early talks from you know the early 2000s and people asking me, how do you make your decisions, Jeff? He will say regret minimization framework. What could I be doing today to minimize the regrets that I'll have tomorrow? Of course, that doesn't mean like just go out and do like a bunch of crazy risks. I mean, maybe it means flying to space, but other than that, maybe that's the most risky thing. Uh, but I think that that framework is one that I think is super fascinating. Do I apply it in my life? I probably could do, you know, a bit better and a bit more, but I think I definitely would have regretted if I didn't, you know, take this time during COVID to make a project that could potentially outlive and outlast me. And that's how that's how I interpret it and thought of it. Like on a much smaller scale, I, like if I'm starting a project or starting anything, will I regret it? And like the best, it's like, there's never a perfect time to start. So yep. like that, that was what resonated with me um, from that chapter. And then another chapter that I like really enjoyed every single part, but just to, to, I guess, the overarching theme of Cher Wang's, Cher Wang or Wang? I think it's Wang, yeah. Wang of HTC phones, like the OG mm -hmm. smartphone, like like the cool kids in middle school were rocking the HTC <laughs> phone, right? Yeah. I mean, the chapter starts with me like having my dad's phone, like just so happy to be able to play games on it, right? Right. Like exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it slides up. Oh my God. Yeah, it's so, so sleek. So, okay. Cher has this reframe everything mentality, which uh, as like somebody who really likes stoic philosophy, I'm not sure if you're familiar was like, mm -hmm. oh my God, you can, you can change everything based on how you look at um, the situation. So she turns failures into an opportunity to be humble. She turns mm -hmm. struggle into like, Hey, this is a problem I can fix, which I was sick. And then she has this idea of like, oh, the environment's changing. That's an opportunity for me to pivot. So maybe I'm not doing it at the scale of a billion dollar business, but these are themes that I can apply to my own life. Do any of those um, kind of either resonate with you or you see yourself adopting? 
Yeah, I mean, the reframing mindset, I think, is is huge. I think Cher's story is super unique, too, because she was the daughter of um, YC Wang, who was probably, like, the biggest tycoon, like, uh, in, in that region. Like, so, like, her dad essentially was, like, Bill Gates, right? And then she came on the scene with all of her siblings. And, like, there's a statistic, I don't remember the exact number, but I think it's, like, close to 50% of all people who were born into wealth tend to lose that wealth by the second generation, right? So Cher is not only fighting against this kind of like, everyone was expecting her to just be like the rich kid, but also the fact that like naturally the tendency is for money and generations to dissipate, right? And so of course she was trying to build this and, and reframe her own family history in addition to all these things that caused her to make the business. But in my own life, I think the reframing mindset is, is pretty important because it allows one to think of themselves in a different context. Right. I'll give you a, a pretty good example from my freshman year of college. I came into freshman year and I was pre-med. I was studying neurobiology and I was going to get a secondary or a minor in chemistry. Right. I looked at the end of my kind of transcript my freshman year, at the end of my freshman year, and just had like a terrible GPA. And I was like, there's no way that like this is going to work. Right. Let's suppose I had this kind of like static non-reframing mindset. I probably would have just like powered through and maybe like done well and maybe gone to med school and like maybe have been happy instead. And maybe this is kind of the like, you know, reframing person of me kind of growth mindset. Like, what can I do to maximize my own strengths? I found the one class in all of freshman year where I got an A and it was a philosophy class. So I thought to myself, I should change my major. philosophy. (laughs) There's something there. (laughs) Right. But what's interesting and the reason why I think it's reframing is because all of my application essays from high school going into college talked about my desire to want to be a neurobiologist or a neuroscientist or to do research on autism and how that affects music and creation and so on and so forth. And I literally had to reframe from freshman summer to my sophomore year, this whole life path and life philosophy, right? Because I stopped being the, the classic like guy who did research in high school to a philosopher like what is what even is a philosopher like what would i have done right, right? Like, i write <laughs> i write things maybe i publish a book maybe that's why i'm publishing this book yeah but i think that personally was a big reframe and i think that having some sort of framework for understanding how others had done it would have been helpful i think for me at that time gotcha and so you're um sharing a little bit about yourself as you do at the beginning of each section of this book which I really enjoyed. And before we dive further into that, is there anything else you'd want to mention about unlocking unicorns? And I I think my plug would be, yes, it's a book about startup founders. It probably wouldn't have been a book that I would have picked up startup founders that you've never heard of nonetheless. So it's not even like, oh, like you can talk to your buddies um, about like this cool, like billionaire whatever. Is there any, but with that said, I got personal lessons out of it. Is there anything that you want to share about unlocking unicorns before we start kind of diving into, into your story? Yeah. I mean, the last thing I would say on that, on the, on the book topic is, I don't know if you're trying to see where the world is going to go in 50 years, I think this book is a roadmap, right? Because I'll use the example of, you know, venture capital investment in Africa. There is more venture capital investment in Denver in the last 12 months than in the whole continent of Africa in the last 12 months, right? Obviously that's like, you know, you know, abysmal, sad, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think to me, what it shows is that 
there's a huge growth potential of opportunity, right? And so if you're thinking like, what is the world going to be like 30, 40, 50 years from now? And who are going to be people who have inspired the generation of today to start doing that? Those were the stories I was trying to capture, right? And there are probably like another like two or three dozen stories that I researched and didn't even put in the book. So I really tried to cool it down to what was really just like the best and the most interesting and the most unique. Um, but for me, it was just a fun passion project uh, that now hopefully is going to be able to inspire other people to be more of a global citizen or to take globalized lessons and apply it to their individual local lives. Yeah, that's that's so well said. And I don't even think we touched on the fact of how these are all um, stories from, I don't even know if you'd call them emerging markets or like probably pre-emerging markets. So if you're interested in more of a, a global perspective, then this is also, you can get that. So like, there's so many different things you can get out of this, this book, but now let's pivot to you in a story you shared in the book where I said, okay, mm-hmm. I got I got to ask him is about Enchiridion corporation. And most people, they have a payment to make, they go get a job, they save up. You didn't do that you started a, a a company as what like a sophomore or junior and yeah, sophomore can you take me back to the early days of Encaridian Corporation yeah i mean so freshman summer was a big kind of turning point for me right one i realized i suck at medicine <laughs> right oh my god Never. everything i've ever done is <laughs> is wrong yeah i was like my life is a lie and second, I mean, it helps to put this in context. I'm the youngest of three, right? Both my parents were born in Ghana, West Africa, and moved here to the U.S. And I was, you know, born in the U.S. Um, both my siblings were also, you know, pre-med and also decided to go on that path. So they're actually both becoming doctors, going to be doctors. I didn't realize until freshman summer, but med school is expensive, right? Like <laughs> master's degree programs are expensive. And I was the youngest of three. So I kind of drew the short stick in that my parents, the money they had saved up, went to my siblings, right? And went to having to pay for their college. And even though, you know, they both had jobs, you know, we were very much like middle-class. So freshman summer, I remember going to Red Robins with my mom, right before we were supposed to go back to school. And I'm sitting there and my mom like, it's kind of sad. And she's like very serious and somber, which is like, usually she's not. And I was like, what's going on? Like, what's up? And I'm like biting into like crisp French fry with like the amazing like salt, like right. smiling. Cause I think I love Red Robins. <laughs> And she's like, she's like, hey, like, I just want to let you know, like, we probably won't be able to pay for much of your college moving forward. Like, you're going to have to really pay for almost all of it. Right. Harvard had great financial aid, but we still had to come up with some money every year to pay. Right. And it was more than I could have worked or could have earned if I was just working at like Lamont Cafe or like the, you know, an on-campus job. Yeah. It just wouldn't have worked. Right. If, if I was making $15 an hour, like I would have had to work like hundreds of hours to the point where I wouldn't be able to do school. So I was thinking to myself, like, what's the best way to leverage myself and my time to be able to make the money I need to pay for college? I think it was like $15,000 a year, right? Which like in retrospect of working at Microsoft, like, wow, I really wish that I could just like borrow for myself in the future. Maybe that's what debt is, but I was very debt averse at the time. And so that's why at the time I was like, okay, let me make a business and I'll see if I can try to make $15,000 a year or more with this business. I mean, spoiler alert, it happened. But what we would do is we would, we, I went around to all the restaurants in Harvard Square and just asked them like, hey, like how many Harvard students do you have coming in the door? And what can I do to make that number go up? 
Um, and I was able to get one client was what we started with. And it was this client named Tom's Bao Bao, which had just opened in Harvard Square. And they served these like Bowza, which is like a Chinese kind of bun with meat on the inside. Um, and I was like, yeah, like no one at Harvard is eating your food. Like, I'm sorry. Sorry. Like, no one even knows. <laughs> the reality <you> check. <laughs> Here's the hard truth. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember saying this to the cashier and there was a woman sitting in the rest in the restaurant and she was like, what would you do if, if you own this place? And I was like, oh, easy. Like I would take all the leftover food every day, deliver it to dining halls with coupons and like get people to come into the restaurant and like be very active on Harvard's campus by like hiring students to be like essentially campus reps. And she's like, okay, well, I'm the COO of this business. We're like a global multinational chain. Like, do you want to implement that strategy and I'll pay you? And that was how it started, which was crazy. So I called like all of my friends. I was like, guys, I'm making a business. Do you want to co-found this with me? And they're like, no, Burv, this is just like another one of you, like your weird, like business things. Like, I'm not going <laughs> like, to do this. Sorry, bro. I think I had to call like 20 people to find three who were like, yeah, we'll do this with you. And those three people are still my really close friends. Like one of them, I recently angel invested in because she's making her own startup now. Another one is an investor in New York. Another one is working at a hedge fund and like it's going to business school with me, hopefully in the future. Um, and so really cool, like collection of people who I don't think I would have been super close with otherwise, but that was the beginning of Enchiridion. And by the, by the end of my senior year, we'd hired about 20 employees to be working with us as consultants, as these kind of like food delivery experts um, and growing the practice beyond just being at Tons Bao Bao to being, you know, other restaurants as well in the square and other businesses in the square. You know, we did consulting for startups, we did consulting for books and book launches and all these different types of things. It kind of was just a fun way to get into marketing. Uh, and that was what I was, well, that's what I would pay for college. That's what I did, uh, you know, going through corporations and S filings and I'm still paying the annual fee for the corporation. I should probably figure out a way to shut it down. But like you know, all these things, it was a really fun time in college to, to work through that. And so there are a lot of little steps in between that whatever few minute story, how do you go from idea to execution? Because I can only imagine like, did you have any like prereqs? Did you have any like, were you hesitant? Did you feel like imposter syndrome, like going into this business and like, oh, I'm, I'm going to help you. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm 20 years old, but I'm going to help you. Like how it sounds like you just have this kind of bias for action. Like how, how do you go from this idea to execution? Yeah, well, definitely it was funny because I was part of the Harvard College Consulting Group. Okay. Which for those people who you know went to Harvard, I don't know if it still has this kind of like same air and mystique, but it, during freshman year, everyone's trying to join HCCG. This is the club that makes like, you know, 150, maybe $200,000 a year and they can't roll over any of the funds. So they just throw huge parties. So imagine going to a $50,000 party every quarter and you're like a college student, right? It's like the dream. And so I thought that that was a little wasteful. I was like, I really wish that like, rather than spending 50K on a party, they would like distribute those funds to people who need it, who were in the club and like could use it for financial aid. Right. So that was kind of how I got the confidence. I was like, well, if HCCG can do it and throw parties, I could probably do it and have like a social bend. Like there's no need for me to, you know, just go to a fun, you know, keg party again. Right. You know, it's, it's a lot of keg parties and it's no need to go again. So it was a lot of fun to do that. But I think to your question, one framework that I have right now in my life is I want to learn as much as possible in my 20s, focus on earning money in my 30s, and then focus on returning, you know, giving back to the community in my 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond. 
So actually, I found that making a business was the fastest way to learn about business. And I wasn't sure, you know, still had this sense of doubt in me, like, should I be a doctor? Like, should I still go to med school? And the only way for me to learn was by doing, right? And that's just the way that that I am. And so at least, you know, in, in that time in my life and still now for the next seven or eight years, like I'm focusing on trying to learn as much as possible by diving in and doing things. And that's why I think Uncurated was a really valuable experience for me. And are you wired to be courageous or like take action like that? Or is that something that was taught to you or you learned? Is that something you had to train? Is that something you needed to overcome? How do you, what's your relationship with that, like that go for it attitude? So it definitely wasn't natural. In middle school, it's probably like the sweatiest kid. Oh God. (laughs) Like not even sweaty because I was like working out sweaty because I was just perpetually nervous all the time. Yep. And so I remember in high school, um, I found this YouTube channel, found two. One of them was called Charisma on Command. And the second one was called Simple Pickup. Right. Those so, are the two cheesiest <laughs> YouTube channels ever, but I've, those sound ridiculous. Keep going. Yeah, but perfect for yeah. a 13-year-old boy. Yeah, it, it, I was the target market. <laughs> so what, what Simple Pickup would do is it was these three guys, college-aged, and they would just go to girls and try to pick them up. That's ridiculous. Right? And each video was different. It was like, I tried to pick up girls wearing a shot collar. Like I tried to pick up girls, but like, I could only say like words that started with the letter W. Right. <laughs> and like weird things like that. And then like, of course, now in retrospect, I realize it's all editing, right? Like you talk to a hundred people, five of them get your good reaction. You use those five. At the time I was like, wow, every time they talk to anyone, they get their numbers. Like what? That's how are they doing it? And so I, I realized that like, and they started talking about like, you know, how they're doing it. And I realized it was just kind of like rejection. Right. And like, I kind of went through this period in high school, especially of what I call rejection therapy, where I went out very intentionally to try and get rejected every single day. I was like, what could I be doing really? to fail today? Yeah. Really? What, like, give me, give me an example. Like I would go to Alfie's pizza. It's like this local pizza shop in Seattle or in North of Seattle. And I'd be like, Hey, can I get two free slices of pizza? Right. And they'd be like, get, no, get, get the hell out of here. Yeah. They'd be like, no, you can't like, like, yeah, pay, you can for pay, it. pay for the five bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd be like, okay, okay, okay. I'll pay. Right. Or I'd go to like Costco and be like, Hey, like, can I speak and do your walkie talkie? And no they'd be way. like, they'd be like, sure. Like, why not? Right. Yeah. And so like slowly you're learning, like asking, you can get what you want so long as you ask. And the downside exactly. is pretty low. And it's pretty low. Like it's just, the downside is what someone's saying. No. And right, that's, like, it's your relation. It. It's your relationship with that rejection that exactly that you need to exactly. train. Okay, keep going. And so there was this guy who had written a whole book about rejection therapy, given this like viral TED talk about rejection therapy called Jia Jiang, okay. and he actually came to Microsoft when I first started working there, and like gave this talk about rejection therapy. And everyone was like so mind blown. They're like, "Oh my gosh, this is crazy!" He's Gonna like, be asking everyone. free pizza every day. <laughs> He's like, everyone go get rejected for a hundred days straight. And I was like, I already did that. Like that was me in high school. Like I found his videos. Like I watched Chris Mon command and, and simple pickup and like just got rejected all the time. But like the successes were great. Right. And so that to me is how I kind of overcame and got to this point where I like, I was confident enough to go up to a restaurant in Harvard square and say like, yeah, I'm 20 years old, but I could probably make your business better. Cause the worst thing that happens is they say no. And the best thing that happens is 
I get a five thousand or ten thousand dollar contract. Right. Wow. It seemed like the upside was like far outweighed the downside. Wow. And that I think is a lesson that I probably could use. And I'm slowly, slowly on a micro scale building it with just like even reaching out to guests for the podcast. I've mm-hmm. come to the point where it's like, okay, I've kind of been using connections, network, kind of friends of friends. But at some point, you're just going to have to reach out to people. And the people I've reached out to just like, because I follow their like newsletter or their online Instagram, they're like, hey, like, I'm busy now, but like, follow me, like, text me in a month. And it's just like, worst case, they don't respond. Like that's, that, that has been the worst that I've had. It's like a no response. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And so I think rejection therapy. Okay. I will link to that in the show notes. I'll probably do a little YouTube binging on myself, maybe (laughs) get myself fired up to uh, get rejected. (laughs) But you mentioned that there's this, this social bend in this public service in a lot that you do, not just in Caridian. So, I mean, you've started hugs for you've worked on Sigma squared society, which I'll, I'll link, but these all have like a public service bend to them. How do you, how do you balance like this personal ambition that like I can tell you have with this, like focus on service to like these communities you care about? Are those intention? Do you think of them separately in different buckets? Like how do you wrap your head around like those, those two concepts? I mean, it comes so naturally to me just because of that's how I grew up. Mm. Right. Like when I was like young, like three, four, five years old, my mom was going to the UW University of Washington and getting a master's. So she had her mom, my grandma come and take care of me. And that was just like, my grandma's like way of being was like always like giving back and thinking of like, the community at large and probably like the clearest example in my mind is i would like wake up sometimes right right before you know around christmas time and she wants to fly back home because it's too cold in seattle <laughs> so she wants to go back to ghana for a little bit for right. like a month a little summer and she would yeah she would like tiptoe into our room and like start taking our teddy bears like our old ones that we weren't playing with anymore and then like put them in her suitcase and fly to ghana and just kind of like hand them out to some of the kids in the village who don't have toys who didn't have toys and so, like, to me, that was kind of, like, what I saw as normal. It's like, oh, yeah, like, every time we go back to Ghana or every time I go on a trip, like, I should do something to, like, bring back a gift to the people that I care about and or to the people who just, like, don't have. And that ultimately is, you talked about Hugs4. That's the founding principle behind Hugs4, which started as this project where we would take teddy bears from local high schools in Washington and just hand deliver them to hospitals and schools and orphanages in Ghana. And that's the founding stories, my grandmother's influence, right? And now we've expanded where we're in six countries. You know, we operate in Ghana, Sierra Leone, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, and of course the United States. And we're taking not just teddy bears, but medical supplies and school supplies and sports supplies, soccer balls, and so on and so forth to, you know, Ghana and Sierra Leone and so on and so forth. So it's really, I think, fascinating kind of company, quote unquote, really a nonprofit but it's, that was my first foray into business. So for me, business always had a social bent because I had never known business that didn't have it until I got to college and realized, wait, you can just go into finance and just move money around and take 1% and become a multimillionaire. Like I didn't like that. Not wasn't what's the value of that. Right. It wasn't even a concept to me. And so to me, like, as I'm looking forward into like, what, you know, what do I want to do in five and 10 years? I think that like, 
I don't know, there are, there are a lot of spillage effects that could be positive. Um, where like, sure, you maybe make 1% off a transaction fee on Venmo or Stripe, but why not give 0.1% of that to, you know, some region or ecosystem that doesn't have it? Um, and of course, there's a bunch of debates as well about, you know, what is effective altruism? And also what is kind of like philanthropic or like positive altruism? Like, does it even help to just go into a community and give them a thousand teddy bears? Maybe it's more helpful to give them a thousand dollars and see what they do with that to build their own community, right? And so it calls me to kind of critically think about what type of business do I want to do and how do I want to make an impact? Uh, but bottom line for me, it's it's always been intertwined. It's always been one and the same because of my grandmother's influence. Thank you for sharing that story. That that all adds up. Like the the story is making sense. And off of that, what maybe there's a connection there. Maybe there isn't of this like giver mindset. I read through, you have your maxims on your websites, your 10 tabulas, which I think are so cool to, to put pen to paper and kind of articulate, like, what do I stand for? What are my values? But one that stood out to me was number three, plant seeds, don't pick fruit. And this caught my Mm -hmm. eye because I recently read Give and Take by Adam Grant, which is kind of, you have an explanation that that was the inspiration Um, So I've been thinking a lot about this idea. So how do you try to implement this like giver mindset in your own life? Yeah. I mean, I think I'll use a very concrete example. Don't use an abstract example, right? The abstract example is like, if you look at like one's network, like one's connections of people that they know, right? It's great to know a bunch of people, but it doesn't really matter if the people that you know, don't know each other right? Like the value of a network is the net that's created, right? Otherwise it's just a bunch of dots. So you have to be making connections with your network. You have to be giving back to your network to truly make it useful and to make it a network rather than just a net space. Like, I don't even know what it would be like. Sure. A dot, like a dot work. If you don't (laughs) make connections, you have a dot work, not a network, right? So to me, that is like a, as a fundamental concept that like, if I'm not giving back to my network, I'm not using my network at all. Right. I think the concrete example is when I first came to Microsoft and Stephen Turbin was the one who had told me about the show and part of the reason that I'm on here. When I first came to Microsoft, Stephen was one of the biggest inspirations for how I wanted to give back to people at Microsoft. Right. Stephen had made the Franklin Fellowship, which was his dinner group that met once a week um, and invited different professors to come get dinner, all focused around self-improvement. And I did that for all four years of college and eventually became the president of the group. When I went to Microsoft, I wanted to recreate the Franklin Fellowship. And I thought, who's the closest thing to a professor at Microsoft? Well, probably like our CEO or yes, like the CFO. Satya Nadella, whatever. Satya Nadella, right? Like, let me just invite all of the corporate vice presidents at Microsoft and executive vice presidents at Microsoft to get lunches with like us regular, like yeah, new 20 whatever year olds. Yeah. And that was what I did, right? I just started emailing them and like creating these networks to like have people meet each other and also have people get, you know, lunch, dinner, whatever with these really cool executives. The reason that I think that shows kind of the give and take mindset is because like, that's what I did, you know, two years ago, last year, and it grew to be pretty large. Like, probably by the end of it, maybe two or 3000 people had joined this project with like, which I called growth groups, right? All around Microsoft's kind of growth mindset. And I went to a party this past weekend, right? After being in lockdown for a year and a half. And I kid you not, three people came up to me separately and said, You're, you look really familiar. And I was like, oh yeah, like, what do you think? And they're like, oh, like, are you the growth groups guy? <laughs> like, that's yeah, now I like am. my brand. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm the growth groups guy. They're like, 
They're like, thank you so much for making that. Like, I didn't have any friends in Seattle when I moved here. Oh my god! And my first friends were the 15 people that I met in my growth groups. And like, I still go to their birthday parties and I still like get dinner with them. So thank you for doing that. Right. And like, again, like these are people who I don't know, like I've never seen their faces. I've never talked to them. And yet, because I focused on giving with no expectation of like getting anything back for you know two, three years of first coming to Microsoft, it's like paid dividends down the road and hopefully we'll pay dividends, you know, in 10 or 15 years from now, but it's, that's planting seeds, right? Like you don't know if anything's going to grow. And if it doesn't, you know, at least you tried your best. And if it does, now you have an apple tree, you know, 10 years later. So I think another great motto that I have that's not on the tablet 10, but, you know, could potentially be is that the best time to plant a tree was yesterday. The second best time is today, right? So like you may as well start giving now, because even if you didn't give before, like there's nothing stopping you from reaping the benefits in the future if you start today. And I love that perspective shift. It kind of gets you out of that paralysis analysis kind of, oh, when's the perfect time and kind of you stop beating yourself up and you, you start today. Um, that is so cool that you continued the Franklin Fellowship, which was a group I so wish was still cooking when I was at school. Um, <laughs> and, or I had like known about, I think it, I think yeah. it was going on the, my first year or two, but thank you for sharing that and explaining that maxims and just, I'll throw out some other ones. Um, that I like number eight pronoia was like a word that I needed so badly in my vocabulary. So thank you for that. And that's yeah. assuming the best intent. And then number one, walk slowly from Ellen Langer's mindfulness, her definition of mindfulness. Um, if people want to dive into those, those are a lot of fun, but just to be mindful pun intended of the time, <laughs> I, I think it would be fun to kind of conclude just with some rapid fire questions. They do not need to be rapid fire answers, like take however much time you want, but it seems like you have a lot going on. You were working full-time and writing this book. So maybe specific to that, or just more generally, is there something important to your daily process that you wish you had started earlier? Yeah, I think the most important thing for my daily process actually is to kind of do like Pomodoro timing, like breaking up my day into smaller days. Yeah. Right. So like every day I actually have mentally three days. I have the morning, the afternoon and the evening. Right. And so if I don't achieve a task in the morning, I'm like, that's fine. I'll do it in the afternoon. If I don't achieve in the afternoon, I'm like, that's fine. I'll do it in the evening. I think a lot of people artificially break up their day is like today is, you know, August X. And like, if I don't accomplish something on August X, I have to do it on August X plus one. And if I don't do it on August X plus one, I have to do it on August X plus two. So I think for me, the reframing of time to think of it as my own unique and different units has been fundamental in shifting how I'm able to achieve a bunch of things. And the way that I break on time for me is every year I look at quarters and I think what three big projects I want to take on every quarter. And within those project quarters, I break are it those, down into... Are those projects outside of your your job? Is that how you think of it? So I'll, I'll give you the three projects I'm working on now, right? Project one is like work, right? Yep. Project two is and I'm very like intentional about this is like my relationship, which matters yep. a lot to me. Absolutely. And project three is the book, Great. right? And those are okay. like the three major projects I'm working on this quarter, right? It's so great for me, great for me to think August. about. So keep going. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so within those projects, like it's like, what are you doing every week to like 
push those projects forward, right? Or to pull back old projects that you put on the back burner, right? And so that to me is very intentional. I can like sometimes go into like a hermit phase where I'll disappear for like three weeks, just get a bunch of shit done and then come back out and be like totally, you know, back in reality, going to parties and events and meeting friends. But that to me is, I wish I'd been doing that earlier, like breaking down my conception of time into what suits me rather than, you know, the predefined 24 hours in the day, right? I mean, yeah. why not just create like 48 Michaels in a day or 77, <laughs> you know, Chris's in a day. Yeah. Right? Like, and then you can do like significantly more in one Chris, right? That's so so cool. that concept is Pomodoro timing. That's so cool. Um, so you, so you look at quarterly goals for these projects, then you break it down. Do you break down your goals beyond that? Uh, not, not usually so actually. It's just like, okay, I'm focused on this bucket. I like that. It's like, I want to do this project yeah. by this date. And like, given that I have like these like three or four phases in each day, right? Like, Amazing. you know, morning, afternoon, evening, and I guess like late night, which mostly just is like playing games, like watching TV, yeah. like browsing Twitter. Like, what am I doing to actually achieve any of those projects in any given day? That's amazing. I come across an idea of breaking up your day into quarters, kind of like a, like going back to my basketball days. So I think, mm -hmm. thank you for reintroducing that. And I would maybe just to wrap up, if there's any quotes or mantras, I have my board like littered with quotes and mantras. And maybe it's like a, a purpose statement. Maybe it's a quote from somebody else or just something that you're thinking of. Does any quote or mantra come to mind that you try and live by? Yeah. My one quote for 2021, which I haven't published anywhere. So Chris, uh -oh. you'll be the first to have it publicly. Exclusive content, everybody. <laughs> Exclusive content. My one quote for 2021 is bet on it. Bet on it. What is that? And the reason, the reason that's my quote is because I think there are a lot of things that I believe, but am I actually like betting on it? Whether it's like money-wise, like time-wise, like any sort of investment, right? Like substitution-wise, like what am I doing to actually bet on my beliefs, right? And, you know, one belief that I had that I wish I had bet on was in 2017, a friend of mine was like, Bitcoin's going to be big. And I was like, Bitcoin is going to be big. And then we both like nodded and like walked away. Bet on it. Like if you really believe in something and you truly think that what you have is unique insight or an insight that's actually going to like affect your life in a positive way, then bet on it. Right. And that's, that was, you know, obviously a monetary bet, like buying Bitcoin. But like another bet that I had in writing this book was like, Hey, I actually do think that the world in 30 years, the best startups aren't going to come from the US. So my bet on that is like, let me understand the best startups in that ecosystem and understand how it actually built that by spending more than 300 hours to research and write a book, like probably way more than that. I haven't even calculated it. Maybe I should, but like, that's a bet that I took on the idea that I had. So to me, that is kind of one of the, my mantras for 2021 and definitely a mantra that I'll have going forward. If you have a belief, bet on it. I can't think of a better way to end this conversation. This has been so fun for me. Thank you for all your insights. And where would you like to send people? You're kind of all over the internet. Um, I'll link up to everything. Where would you like to, uh, to send people? You know what? Maybe they should just Google. I think actually that's the best option. Love it. Because my projects are so you know, diverse. So yeah, they change. They're so diverse. So honestly, if you Google me um, or go to microbrevel.com, you'll find 
the updated list of whatever I'm working on and whatever awesome. I'm publishing. And there'll be hyperlinks galore uh, on that to, to follow anything you want. So awesome. thank you again for taking the time and hopefully we can continue this conversation. I have pages of notes and millions of other questions I could ask you. So thank you, my friend. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chris. And thanks everyone for listening. Absolutely. Bye-bye. See ya. Hey, everybody. Thank you all for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed that one. As always, you can find links to everything we discussed, show notes, and a lot more goodies like my favorite reads on my website at chrismcgrory.net. That's C-H-R-I-S-M-C-G-R-O-R-Y.net. Thanks so much and see you next time.